the National Archives podcast series. This talk is called UFO Files at the National Archives, presented by Dr. David Clark. It was recorded on the 8th of March 2018 at the National Archives Q. Uh, thanks to everyone for coming along tonight. Just to start with, 2017 marked the 70th anniversary of the, of the UFO mystery. don't know whether you're aware of that, the modern one anyway, because although there have been sightings of strange aerial phenomena before the Second World War, and interest in the existence of alien intelligences can be traced back to ancient times, the idea that mysterious flying objects seen in the sky represent reconnaissance of the Earth by extraterrestrials can be dated to a very specific period, almost precisely 1947, which also was the very beginning of the Cold War. And during the Cold War, Western governments and intelligence agencies spent millions of taxpayers' money collecting, analysing and investigating reports of unidentified flying objects, whilst at the same time denying that they had any formal interest in the subject. Now, much of this collection and analysis was carried out secretly, as I've said, whilst the, uh, the MOD and other agencies put out bland position statements that said, in effect, A, there was no evidence that UFOs, whatever they were, constituted a threat to defence, and B, as a result of that, they had never carried out any in-depth study and therefore had no expertise on the subject. And anyone who's actually written to the Ministry of Defence about this will probably have had a statement effectively saying that. But before the arrival of freedom of information, um, there was not much an ordinary person like us could do to scrutinise these public statements or establish what work was really going on behind the scenes or what investigations have been made into some of the quite spectacular sightings and experiences that have been published in the media and circulated by ufologists, people who are interested in the subject um, of UFOs. But since the 1990s, there's been a sea change in um, access to um, government documents. Firstly, with the Open Government Initiative uh, that was started by John Major, Prime Minister, Code of Conduct for Access to Government Information that was introduced during John Major's Premiership. And finally, under Tony Blair, you will probably all remember, we got the full Freedom of Information Act. Now, the document trail that's emerged, that emerged before that under the Public Record Act, something known as the Put the 30-Year Rule that you may have heard about, show that claims that the Ministry of Defence only had a passing interest in this subject and never treated UFOs as a serious threat to defence were not quite the whole story. And I think you're going to have, have your eyes opened tonight by what I'm going to show you. Because I've spent the last 20 years working through this material. In fact, I think the first time I walked through the doors of the National Archives was almost exactly 20 years ago in 1998 when I actually started this research. And I started the research as an investigative journalist. I was looking for a good story. And initially, I used the Freedom of Information Act to discover what documents our governments were hiding um, on what, during that time in the 1990s, was a very newsworthy and quirky topic. It ticked all the boxes for news values. But more recently, as an academic researcher at Sheffield Hallam University's Department of Journalism, 
that good story has been transformed into a full-time research impact project. So tonight, I want to present to you the fruits of my labours, and in so doing, I'm going to reveal what I believe to be the 10 most important or significant documents and groups of documents that have emerged from the British government's UFO <coughs> file. And I'm really pleased that after many, many decades, these all now form part of the important collection of documents here at the National Archives. So please note that any selection of this kind is entirely subjective, and I'm conscious that we have limited time to discuss the highlights of what is actually an enormous collection of material. So, before I start, many of you might be aware of this story that broke just before the Christmas holidays, initially in the New York Times, and, it, and th that newspaper revealed that the American Department of Defense had been secretly running um, a program to investigate reports of unidentified flying objects, and they'd hidden this really clearly in plain sight by leaving one right in the middle of the Pentagon. This program was hidden under the snappy title of the Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program, or AATIP for short. And according to press reports, it had an annual budget of $22 million. Just think about that. Um, little of significance has emerged since this annou announcement, apart from a couple of grainy videos shot by US Navy pilots. But of interest to me is the fact that since this announcement was em emerged in the media just before Christmas, the US Department of Defense has been inundated. It's had more than 2,000 freedom of information requests about this program from people wanting to see the actual files and documents that they've accumulated. <coughs> And across the world, freedom of information has obliged governments to open up their files on this subject to curious citizens like myself, not just in the UK and the USA, but also in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Brazil, France, and many other countries. All of them in the last 10 years have opened up the files, tried to upload stuff onto the internet so that people can see what work has been done. And of course, this wasn't the first time that the United States military have funded official investigations of UFOs or flying saucers, as they used to be known in the early days. From 1947, the US Air Force ran a series of UFO investigation projects under, under a variety of names, the best known of which was Project Blue Book. Okay? That operated from 1952 to 1969, and it was closed after the University of Colorado uh, which was given a $30 million contract from the United States Air Force to, act, to look at its files on the subject. It had accumulated something like 12,000 reports between 1947 and 1969. And the university did a, um, a survey of what, what was contained there, and it found that about 6% or 701 of those 12,000 reports remained unidentified. So despite the fact that there were these... Um, unidentified sightings, it reached the conclusions that around 90% of all reports could be traced to ordinary phenomena, man-made and natural. No UFO report had ever given any indication of a threat to national security. There was no evidence even that sightings categorised as unexplained or unidentified were extraterrestrial spacecraft. And finally, little, if anything, had emerged from the study of UFOs since 1947, that had added to scientific knowledge, and further extensive study of UFO sightings by military or scientific sources was not justified. Now, clearly those, those conclusions 
cannot be the final say or else they would not be spending $22 million a year from 2007 onwards. So something must have happened um, in the meantime. And it, what we can say is that Project Blue Book failed to kill off interest in the subject, which was probably the intention at the time. And one of the themes that I've noticed in my research was how much our Ministry of Defence have relied upon the results from these American projects to inform their own conclusions and also about how to deal with the accumulated archives that these investigations produced. Because in 1970, when Project Blue Book closed, what happened was they transferred all their files to the US National Archives and basically said, that's the end of our interest. If you want to know about UFOs, go and look at the Blue Book files. And that is effectively what the British have done by transferring the Ministry of Defence files here to the, our National Archives. So bear that in mind as we go along. First, a bit of history. The acronym UFO, remember that the U stands for unidentified, was itself a product of the Cold War. It was coined by the head of Project Blue Book in 1952, Ed Ruppelt, and he wanted a phrase that didn't imply that these unidentified objects in the sky were spacecraft from elsewhere, because flying saucers, by the nature of the phrase, means spacecraft from elsewhere, and he wanted a military term to get away from that idea. So he coined UFO as like something that the USAF could use as shorthand at this time, the military were not concerned with what Ruppelt called men from Mars. They were interested in aircraft and missiles from another alien nation, the Soviet Union. And they wanted to know if these things came from behind the Iron Curtain. And the Cold War effectively provides the most important context in which all these stories about UFOs and flying saucers emerged. So you have to see belief in UFOs in the context of that period. Rapid technological advances, the space race, the influence of science fiction, movies and TV programs, government secrecy, which was endemic throughout the Cold War, and the continuing spectre of nuclear war. These all fueled anxiety and paranoia on a mass scale, which fed into this growing myth of visitations by ET. And when I say myth, I don't mean to say false. I'm talking about a myth meaning something, a story that we accept to explain things we don't understand, as in the Greek myths. So although this talk is about the British files, we can't ignore the fact that the modern UFO phenomenon began in the USA. And you can actually trace it all to one specific event. Kenneth Arnold, pilot, private pilot, um, he was um, flying, looking for a crashed supply plane in Washington State um, over Mount Rainier on the afternoon of the 24th of June 1947 and we can trace the modern UFO phenomenon specifically to that date and that time and he was flying along and he noticed a formation of what he described as nine mysterious objects in the distance and they were flying in echelon formation and you'll notice that his drawing doesn't show a flying saucer it's like a bat wing, almost like what you would see today, one of the stealth um, aircraft that the Americans have developed. And he, des but he described it when he landed uh, at, um, one of the, at the airfield in Washington State. He's, he was asked by a reporter, what did you see? And he said, well, I saw these bat wing shaped objects. And he said, how did they move? 
and he says they moved like a saucer would if you skipped it across a pond. So you can see the way journalists sort of looked at this and thought, hmm, we need to come up with a phrase that people um, will recognise. And that's how flying saucers hit the headlines. Arnold later calculated the speed of the mysterious aircraft that he'd seen as being around 1,200 miles per hour. That was actually double the speed of the most advanced fighter aircraft that was in existence at the time. But he, right to his dying day, never used the phrase flying saucer. He described the nine objects as crescent-shaped or bat-wing-shaped. Flying saucers were invented by newspapers. But within 48 hours of his report arriving, the headlines created an international sensation. People began reporting to seeing mysterious disc and saucer-shaped objects, not only across North America, but the entire world. At the time, many commentators wrote off flying saucers as being a silly season fad. came along at the time when newspapers are looking for that kind of quirky story. It was compared to the Loch Ness Monster in the British press. People thought that by September, people will have forgotten about it. But few people back then realised we would still be talking about this subject 70 years later. And one measure of its massive cultural impact was the fact that in August 1947, just two months later, the Gallup organisation ran a poll of US citizens. And it found that nine out of ten people had heard about flying saucers. Think about that. Within two months of this sighting, nine out of ten Americans had heard of flying saucers. And Gallup has said that that is one of the largest recognition ratings in the history of the Gallup organisation. Just shows you what impact this story had. And Kenneth Arnold's sighting and the Roswell incident that followed came at a critical moment in the post-World War II landscape. Ken Arnold himself initially believed that he'd witnessed a test flight of top-secret prototype aircraft flown by the US Navy or Army Air Force. And the memo you can see here which is actually from the US National Archives. I borrowed it for the night. It's quite a seminal uh, document, that, and it, it was sent by General Nathan Twining to General Shulgin of the US Army Air Force. This is before the actual US Air Force came into existence. And it's from September 1947. And it marks the moment that Project Sign, which, the, which was the predecessor for Project Blue Book, the very first official investigation of UFOs by any country, came into existence. And General Twining says that an intelligent assessment of the reports that were made during that summer had concluded that the phenomenon reported is something real and not visionary, which was quite something at the time. So that marks the beginning of the modern era of government UFO investigations. Uh, the point at which the United States Air Force, and soon to be followed by the RAF and the Ministry of Defence, began investigating these mysterious sightings. So, much has been written about the American project, Blue Book, since its records were deposited at the US National Archives, but far less has been said about its British equivalent, the Ministry of Defence files, which are now largely here. And I think I can say I'm one of the few people, perhaps the only person, who can honestly say that they have read virtually every single surviving memo, report and document on this subject in the UK archives somewhere in the order of 120,000 pages of material. No wonder I've had to have laser treatment on my eyes. <laughs> uh, I should explain that the first files on this subject were open here, when this place was called the Public Record Office, 
under the 30-year rule in 1986. That's when the Winston Churchill memo actually arrived here. Uh, in the 30 years between 1986 and 2006, a further 200 files were opened, usually on the 1st of January. And you could come and you could order them up and consult them in the reading room. So that's where I started looking at them back in 1998 as a journalist. And at that time, there already existed about 150 to 200 files on the subject at Kew. And when we got to 2007, the Ministry of Defence decided, because there was so much interest in this subject, to release all the remaining archive in what was a special open government project in response to the public interest in the subject. A sum of money was found to scan and redact personal information from the remaining documents, and these were uploaded to a dedicated UFO landing page, it was called, <laughs> on the archive's website, which is still there, you can still find it. The five-year project, I've tried to sort of summarise some of the results from it, um, resulted in the advance opening of a further 209 files, in all another 52,000 pages, and they were released in 10 um, tranches that began in May 2008 and ended in July 2013. Now, my role was as a consultant or a curator of the files to read and prepare summaries and highlights of each of these 10 tranches of files and to act as the media expert or go-to person when each of the files were released um, to the public. And in terms of public impact and engagement, this project was a massive success. The first, the first release in 2008 alone, just that alone, broke records. It received more unique visits than the release of the Doomsday Book online, which is an incredible um, impact. And for the whole um, programme, as you can see, this is information provided by the National Archives Press Office. There were four, there's up to date, between 2008 and present, there's been 4.7 million paid views of the documents and 3.9 million document downloads. All the wonderful things that you can do now when you, when you sort of um, run a thing like this, you can, you can find out how many people have visited, when they visited, where they are. And it's interesting that people in America seem to be more interested in our documents than we are. And South Korea as well. As the people there are interested in what people have been seeing. One document alone that particular one, which is a UFO policy document, has been downloaded a quarter of a million times. And it's been estimated that news of the releases have reached an estimated 25 million people uh, across the world. And it's got, the National Archives did a really good job on this because the French government released their UFO files a year before this, and there was so much interest in that that the website they set up crashed because it couldn't cope with the traffic. So something was done here. <laughs> to prevent that happening. Yeah, so what took me by surprise was that this massive public and media interest, that the, the Ministry of Defence and the National Archives seemed to be quite surprised that there was so much interest in this subject. I never understood why this should be the case, because although some regard UFOs as being a fringe topic, that obviously isn't the view shared by the general public. And even the SETI scientists search for extraterrestrial intelligence, Seth Shostak, who you may have seen on TV, he himself has pointed out that opinion surveys have found that somewhere between one-third and one-half of the US and the UK population say they believe Earth has been visited by extraterrestrials. And around one or two percent of people claim that they've had a personal UFO experience. About one point one or two percent of the general sample. 
Now, so, I suggest to you that this isn't a fringe topic. Interest in UFOs is a mainstream topic. It should be treated as such and not as trivia. It's not something to be disregarded as unimportant. Um, whether it's true or false is irrelevant. It's a social phenomenon. And the reason I'm showing you this, just to give you an example, this is an extract from a 2002 UFO file. And this is five years before the, U the MOD decided to transfer their remaining archives to Kew. And in 2002, they were playing with a new toy called the Internet to experiment. And they actually uploaded some of their UFO files onto the MOD website for people to download. And as you can see, they were unprepared for the results. This is just one sample uh, period between the 29th of November 2002 and the 18th, 18th of December. And as you can see they logged 15,000 downloads of UFO documents from their website. Um, the top three files, as you can see, were all UFO-related. They were even more popular, can you believe it, than MOD press releases. <coughs> and in 2005, the first year of implementation of the Freedom of Information Act, they received 199 requests, individual requests, for UFO-related documents. Again, in the top three. So any idea that there's no public interest in this subject and it's unimportant should have been dispelled at that point. So what is it in these documents that people find so fascinating? Well, here are just some examples. These are crayon drawings made by children from a primary school in Cheshire in 1977. And they ran to tell their teacher that a flying saucer had landed in their playground at lunchtime. The teacher was so convinced that they'd seen something extraordinary that she called the police. Imagine that. The police arrived and they were convinced that the children had seen something uh, unusual. So much so that the police officer rang Manchester Airport, air traffic control, ruled, that, ruled out any chance of it being an aircraft. He went back to the school, gathered up all the children's drawings and forwarded the dossier to the branch of the MOD which acted as a focal point for reports on UFOs. And there they remained on file for another 30 years before those drawings came here to Kew and people could see them. And you'll notice also this one, uh, the young woman who produced this amazing pencil drawing of an object that looks like it might be one of the advanced Thunderbird aircraft. This was seen over Hampstead en route to Tracy Island in 1972. Note, these are just a few of the images, fantastic drawings that I chose from the files for my book, UFO Drawings at the National Archives, published by Four Corners Books last year. And when I look at these often crude but effective drawings of UFOs and flying saucers sent to the Ministry of Defence by ordinary people, I see objects of great cultural, historical and imaginative value, whatever they represent. But I have to accept that the departmental record officers, the civil servants, the RAF people who gathered them didn't always share my view. But from 2005, freedom of information imposed a responsibility upon Ministry of Defence archive managers to firstly put in place a rigorous and efficient record management system. That was part of the requirements under FOI, and for the first time in law, they had to respond to requests for access to closed files and records from people like myself. And this was, wasn't actually formalised until 2011, 
when the Ministry of Defence updated its guidance for record reviewers for the first time listing UFOs under the list of topics subject to special review procedures, which basically means they can't destroy <coughs> files on that subject anymore. So UFO records were no longer regarded as unimportant in terms of public records. They were now invested with public interest, and I like to believe that I played a small but significant role via my freedom of information requests and research in shifting the perception of these records as trivia, which is how they were regarded before that, to something of long-lasting cultural value. But it's important to remember that although something like 400 files have survived and can now be consulted here in the reading rooms at Kew um, or via the National Archives website, these are just a fraction of the number that once existed because vast swathes of earlier records, many of them dating from the Kenneth Arnold period, 1940s, 1950s, but also even some recent papers from the 1980s were destroyed decades ago. And these poor administrative decisions have had consequences in that this destruction policy has provided a gift for conspiracy theorists who are suspicious, quite rightly in some cases, of the reasons for it. One of the unfortunate consequences has been upon the impact on government on public trust. The files themselves, if you look at them, are filled with letters, emails and questions from ordinary members of the public, the press, members of parliament, lords, all doubting the basic truth of the Ministry of Defence's straightforward policy statements on the subject. And many of these doubts are based upon responses from the Ministry of Defence who say they cannot comment because all the files from the earlier periods have been destroyed. So they've actually created a stick for conspiracy theorists to beat them with. Now, just to gain an understanding of the records, we need to get our head around the complex administrative structure of the MOD that produced them. There is this popular idea of a UFO desk that once existed that conjures up images of lavishly funded <coughs> secret organisations like in the Men in Black films that you may have seen. But, from my research, it would be more accurate to describe the system as more like something you would see in Yes Minister. <laughs> so since about 1958, there's, there, there's been a branch of the Air Staff Secretariat that acted as the <coughs> focal point, the clearinghouse for all public inquiries. This is what became known as the UFO desk. And as you can see, it's constantly changing its name and reinventing itself. And that's what makes the record so difficult to follow in chronological order. Um, and this diagram um, attempts to show that there was never just one branch that had an interest in the subject or sole responsibility for it. So if you can imagine all these people all beavering away on the subject, all creating their own series of files, all sharing documents, you can see and appreciate how easy it is for stuff to get lost and destroyed and discarded. And the UFO desk acted as a filing cabinet and a post box for the <coughs> standard line that was sent out to anyone who contacted the ministry to report a UFO experience, but they were never responsible for investigations of UFO incidents <coughs> that were deemed to be possibly of defence significance. The people who did the investigations were Air Technical Intelligence and the Air, Air Defence, the RAF, HQ Number 11 Group and um, Air Defence Ground Environment, who had access to radars. So if someone saw something, they could immediately check whether it was visible on their radar picture. And the files revealed that these two had the resources when they needed to carry out detailed inquiries and, if necessary, 
impound radar film, or even scramble aircraft if necessary. How did they gather <laughs> sightings? Well, they did it via a standard report, and you'll see here on this one, the RAF duty officer on this particular evening obviously had a bit of a sense of humour because he's added an improvised doodle of a UFO alien in the top corner, and this was photocopied, so it turns up on lots of other examples of the, uh, of the files. So they actually, again, the British, again, just copied this from Project Blue Book because it's, there's a very similar form that was used by the Americans to gather basic information about sightings. Um, the original Air Ministry form had five basic questions, A to E, that was based upon a template used by Blue Book. And during the 60s, the Ministry of Defence updated the forms and distributed copies to RAF stations, air traffic control centres <laughs> and police. So when a member of the public called to report a sighting, someone would grab a blank copy of that and take down the basic details, send it to the UFO desk. Okay? And in by 1997, they were so inundated because their workload doubled and trebled because the X-Files were on TV, that they actually <laughs> set up an answer phone in Whitehall. So if you saw a UFO, phone the UFO desk and leave a message on the answer phone. Um, it's interesting, if you look at the files, there are thousands of these in the files, literally thousands. And if you read through them, some of them are quite amusing. There's occasional examples in the files of what one official described as uncomplimentary comments made by staff about members of the public who, who called to report frivolous observations. For example, two objects that look like stars. Or a dot in the sky that did not look like an aeroplane. Okay. Anyway, I've burbled on long enough to give you the basic context. Now I want to give you my top ten documents. And I had to choose this one as the, my, the first of my ten documents. <coughs> Possibly the best-known UFO-related document at the National Archives, the UK National Archives. In 1952, our Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, <coughs> then aged 77, was sufficiently worried about a spate of UFO sightings across the Atlantic over Washington, D.C., that he fired off this famous memo to the Air Ministry. What's all this stuff about flying saucers amount to? What can it mean? What is the truth? Let me have a report at your convenience. And it's interesting that those questions um, could be questions that we could all ask. What is the truth? That's what we want to know. And he was effectively, as our Prime Minister summarising that. He'd heard the stuff, he'd seen the press reports, he wanted to know. Quite reasonable. High to the Cold War. Um, could these um, things be Russians? Is there a threat to the defence of the country? In the same file, you'll see he got the response from the Air Ministry, who said, effectively, nothing to worry about, Prime Minister. Our best chats have been looking at the subject. You can rest assured a full intelligence study has been carried out by the Ministry of Defence and the conclusions this reached are pretty much the same as those reached by the US Air Force, Project Sign and Grudge. And the study had turned to what it called a very old scientific principle, Occam's Razor, which states that the most probable hypothesis is the simplest necessary to explain the observations. So the conclusions, as you can see there, were that all sightings reported were due to one or another of the following causes. Astronomical or meteorological phenomena of known types, mistaken identification of aircraft, balloons, etc., optical illusions and psychological delusions, deliberate hoaxes. 
But what's interesting is this scientific approach to the problem was not shared by everyone in Churchill's cabinet. He was Churchill's son-in-law, and he was also, at the time, the Minister, the minister of Supply, later to become the Minister of Defence. So quite um, high-powered. He clashed with Lord Cherwell, who was the government's chief scientific advisor. And Cherwell had circulated a minute to Churchill and the other members of the cabinet saying, forget this flying saucer nonsense. It's just another example of American mass hysteria. They were his words. But Duncan Sands was sceptical of the certainty expressed by the government scientists. He insisted that the evidence for flying saucers was no different to the first reports of German V2 rockets when they arrived in 1943, which he said all our leading scientists declared to be technically impossible at the time, yet they arrived. So, my number two document. Although Churchill's memo was released in 1986, no trace of this full intelligence study could be found in the Ministry of Defence archives. And for around 15 years, anyone who asked to see this thing that was used to brief Churchill was told, sorry, can't find it, it's been destroyed, along with all the other UFO files from the 1950s and 60s. I found this impossible to believe. And in 2001, in the run-up to the implementation of the Freedom of Information Act, I made a request for it. I was initially fobbed off by the departmental record officer who said, no trace can be found, therefore we have to assume it's been destroyed. But then, six months later, I got another letter saying, one of our record reviewers was looking at an unrelated file on scientific intelligence, and guess what he found? A copy of the study that had been made in 1950 that had been used to brief Winston Churchill. And what my research then revealed was that the study had been ordered in 1950 as a direct result of an appeal by one of Churchill's most trusted scientists, Sir Henry Tizard, who was probably, you may have heard of him, he was one of the people who was involved in the development of radar that was um, so effective in the defence of the UK during the Battle of Britain. So it was a direct intervention by Tizard. He said, reports of flying saucers should be taken seriously and not dismissed out of hand. And as a result of his intervention, the Ministry of Defence's Department of Scientific <coughs> and Technical Intelligence set up what, they, what became known as the Flying Saucer Working Party, possibly the most exotically named working party in the history of the civil service. And it's interesting to note that the full study that was used to reassure Winston Churchill ran to just six pages. And the only section that's been removed on it was a paragraph that said it had been shared and approved by the CIA. So these six sheets of paper were used as the basis for all British official policy on the subject for the next 50 years. Also note the change in terminology. Flying sources have been rejected. Now we've adopted the Americanism, unidentified flying objects. In summary, its conclusions were that no further study of UFOs should be conducted unless and until some better evidence becomes available. The top quote is, when the only material available is a mass of purely subjective evidence, it is impossible to give anything like scientific proof that the phenomena observed or are or are not caused by something entirely novel, such as aircraft of extraterrestrial origin developed by beings unknown to us on lines more advanced than anything we have thought of. So quite an interesting line from the MOD at that time. 
I think, having worked through all these documents, that the key document is not actually in the report. It's a covering letter that people would, would, might have just passed over and not realised the significance of. Because when the report was completed in 1951, it was sent to Henry Tizard by Bertie Blount, who was the Director of Scientific Intelligence, with this covering note. And it says, quite cryptically, I think, this is the report <coughs> on flying saucers for which you asked. I hope it will serve its purpose. What was its purpose? Okay, moving swiftly on. Docu top document number three. This is quite a spectacular sighting where nothing was seen, at least by the human eye. Early in April 1957, <coughs> two radar cabins at a bombing range in Scotland, RAF Westfraw, detected an enormous UFO moving at an incredible height for the time, 70,000 feet above the Irish Sea, far beyond the capability of most, most aircraft of the day. Civilian radar operators spoke to the media about this before they could be told not to, because it was covered by the Official Secrets Act. And it ended up on the front page of a lot of national newspapers, much to the chagrin of the Minister of Defence. This led to a major panic in Whitehall, questions in Parliament, and for the very first time, UFOs came up on the agenda of the Joint Intelligence Committee, or JIC. Never again, as far as I'm aware. Um, we were now at the height of the Cold War, and the radar technicians were warned under the Official Secrets Act not to say anything else about what they'd detected. A very odd thing to do if, as the Minister of Defence claimed, UFOs didn't exist, and there was no threat to defence from something that didn't exist. So why use the Official Secrets Act? Because of the parliamentary interest in this case, the full intelligence report about it has survived. It confirms that not one, but five objects were detected by three separate radar stations, at least one of which rose to an altitude of 70,000 feet, where it remained occasionally stationary and at other times moving at speeds of up to 240 miles per hour. Shortly before it vanished, the radar operator sought to four smaller objects moving in line astern behind the big one. And the report says that the radar operators said the sizes of these echoes were considerably larger than would be expected from normal aircraft. In fact, they considered that the size was nearer that of a ship's echo. Think about that, over the Irish Sea. The investigation ruled out the usual suspects, the eliminated aircraft, meteorological balloons, charged thunder clouds, etc., etc. And the conclusion they reached is both significant and important because it's probably the closest that the Air Ministry ever came to an admission that UFOs did exist. It is concluded that the incident was due to the presence of five reflecting objects of unknown type and origin. What were they? Of course, at the time, the existence and capability of the CIA's U-2 spy plane was one of the most closely guarded secrets in the Western world. Was it a U-2? Never been answered. And the CIA files show it was a top-secret project, and at this time, there was a number of, of air defence alerts triggered all around the Western world, caused by U-2s flying into um, different countries' airspace, because it was a top-secret project, they didn't tell us about it, they didn't tell the French about it. So maybe they were even testing our radar defences. But who knows? It's a mystery. Number four. After Winston Churchill's memo, this is without doubt the best-known, if not the most significant UFO document held 
by the National Archives. It has become, indeed, one of the most famous documents in the history of ufology across the earth, not just here. So it's about the Rendlesham Forest incident. Again, I'm sure you must have heard about that. Um, it's got to be there in my top ten. The memo was sent by an American um, officer, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt of the U.S. Air Force, to the UFO desk at Whitehall on the 13th of January, 1981. Now, immediately I ask you, why did he wait two weeks to send this memo? You see, the actual events happened just before Christmas. So it's like, um, I think I better tell you the aliens landed just before Christmas. But I waited two weeks for the base commander to come back from his Christmas holidays to actually write a memo about this. Something fishy right from the beginning. Uh, one time, at that time, sorry, Holt was the deputy commander of RAF Woodbridge in Suffolk, nuclear-armed NATO airbase. And as you can see, what, he's, what he was reporting was sent under the plain heading Unexplained Lights, and it describes a series of bizarre sightings reported by American airmen and security police over the Rendlesham Forest, a mile from the east gate of the twin Bentwaters Woodbridge airbase. In the document, Holt describes how on the first night, three unarmed airmen went to investigate what they believe was an air crash in the forest. After venturing deep inside the Forestry Commission plantation, they saw a strange glowing object, metallic in appearance and triangular in shape, two to three metres long and two metres high. This object, or whatever it was, um, illuminated the entire forest with a white light and had a pulsing red light on top and a bank of blue lights underneath. The object was hovering or on legs, and as the patrolman approached, it manoeuvred through the trees and disappeared. Early the next morning, British police constables were called to look at the evidence because the airmen had gone back and found holes in the forest floor where they thought this thing had come down. But while they were there, they were distracted by a call about a break-in at a post office. Off they went, leaving the evidence <laughs> behind. I kid you not, that is what happened. Two nights later, Colonel Holt, who claims he was determined to debunk the story, led a party of airmen into the forest equipped with a Geiger counter. He wanted to get some hard evidence that something had happened there. And as they go into the forest, they claim they can detect higher levels of radiation, both on the trees and on the holes in the ground. And then, as Holt records the events in real time on a handheld tape recorder, the team actually have their own UFO experience, which he describes in the third paragraph. As the animals in the forest began making an awful noise, a red sunlight light appeared, moved through the trees, pulsated, and disappeared. And you can hear him getting more and more excited on this tape. Um, of course, there's a lot more detail to this story than that. I don't have the time to go into it here. But I just want to make the point that although the RAF Woodbridge UFO has now become a ufological legend, the files that you can actually examine, the original document as it appears in the files, um, just turn up in the general UFO report file. It's not treated as anything special or out of the ordinary. And it reveals the file that the only investigation that was carried out at the time was some straightforward checks by the RAF on air defence radars. They found nothing unusual had been seen on radar, therefore not interested. Move on to the next one. And it wasn't until Colonel Holt's sensational story hit the headlines in the News of the World in 1983, two years later... <laughs> Um, that it became world famous. And anyone who has examined the so-called Rendlesham file, which was released in 2001, will know that it takes the story no further. It opens with Holt's memo, and much of the remaining 200 pages 
consists of letters from UFO ufologists across the world wanting to know more. Okay, so before we move on to the next one, I just want to show you what I think is the most significant statement in the files on the Rendlesham Forest incident. And it was put together for a private briefing that was given to this guy, the late Admiral Lord Hill Norton, who was a retired Chief of Defence Staff, no less, who became obsessed with this topic. He put in <coughs> dozens of questions in the House of Lords to the MOD about the Rendlesham incident, and he actually challenged the MOD to answer what I think is quite a reasonable question. If the American report is accurate, there is evidence that British airspace and territory are vulnerable to unwarranted intrusion to a disturbing degree. If a UFO came in, landed right next to a nuclear-armed NATO airbase, shouldn't the MOD be interested in that? If, on the other hand, Colonel Holt's report must be dismissed, then we have evidence, no less disturbing, I suggest, that a sizable number of American personnel at an important nuclear-armed base in British territory are capable of serious misperception the consequences of which might be grave in military terms. Good question. Now, I spoke to Hill Norton about this, and he told me that the Ministry of Defence had never given him a satisfactory response to his questions about Holt's report. But this briefing, revealed in the fourth release of papers in 2009, tells a very different story. It tells how the noble lord was told by the MOD that they considered it highly unlikely that any violation of UK airspace would be heralded by a display of lights. Now think about it. If UFOs don't want to be seen, why do they leave the lights on? Quite a reasonable question. If you're doing something that's sort of covert, why would you come with all these lights flashing? That was their attitude. We think it's equally unlikely that any reconnaissance or spying activity by a hostile foreign nation would be announced in this way. We believe the fact that Colonel Holt did not report these occurrences to the MOD for almost two weeks after the event, together with the low-key manner in which he handled it, are indicative of the degree of importance in defence terms that should be attached to this incident. That was their final word on the matter. Okay, next one, number five. Whatever view you take of the... Rendlesham Forest incident, it's quite a surprise to learn that no detailed investigation of it was ever carried out by the MOD, if you believe what they say. But that inconvenient fact is what the surviving records actually show. This is what we have to accept, I'm afraid. But that isn't the case with this document. And this is an exclusive, because this has never before been shown in public, and it was only released to me two weeks ago. Um, this, is a, this is an incident that happened in October 1983 when personnel at RAF Trudos, high on Mount Olympus on the British-controlled territory in the island of Cyprus, were monitoring a secret flight by an American spy plane, an RC-135, and it was following Soviet military activity in the Middle East. And this is an entry from the base operations record book. And again, like with the Rendlesham Forest incident, it starts with a rather classic understatement. The 19th of October proved to be an exciting evening. <laughs> you can say that again. Because this particular spy plane was buzzed by something that the crew, the American crew, described as something very, very big with multiple flashing lights. It circled around their aircraft and as it did so they became more and more convinced that they were being escorted by a UFO. 
The object was clearly visible on the aircraft radars, but nothing could be seen on RAF Trudos radar, the ground radar, or by any other air defense radar. All the time that they were seeing this thing, they were talking to RAF Trudos, who were listening in, talking to the crew and recording what was happening. And they were giving them a minute-by-minute -minute account what was going on at 35,000 feet above the Mediterranean. And this report triggered an air defense scramble. You may be able to see on there. An F-4 Phantom was sent up from RAF Akrotiri to investigate. And it was joined by two F-14 American Tomcats sent up from the US 6th Fleet. But the UFO did not hang around for the three fighters to intercept it. Before they reached the scene, it just zoomed off, disappeared in the direction of the African coast. Now, I wonder, have any, any of you seen the Marvel film Black Panther? Maybe this UFO was returning home to Wakanda. <laughs> yeah? The direction of Africa. Anyway, a bit of an in-joke for those who have seen the film. <laughs> Okay, these are the remaining documents about the case. It says very clearly on the preceding document that the contact remains a mystery. Um, unlike the Red Mushroom Forest incident, the file shows this incident was taken very seriously. Radar film of the recordings of the ground-to-air chatter were impounded, sent to London for scrutiny by RAF specialists. The very last memo in the file says all the material was sent to the USA for further study. But that is where the trail goes cold. This is one of the biggest frustrations in my research. What happened to the case file? What happened to the radar film? What happened to the analysis? There's no trace of it in the files. If you believe the Ministry of Defence, they don't know themselves because all those records have been destroyed. That's their line on the subject. Surprise, surprise. This is the sort of stuff from which conspiracy theories are formed. Okay, moving swiftly on. Number six. On the subject of conspiracies, this takes me to my next document, which dates from 1967, the year I was born. And it was also the one year where the MOD was literally inundated with UFO reports. Before this, they'd previously logged about a dozen each year. But in 1967, they received a report virtually every single day of the year, 362 reports in 1967. Uh, start of a trend that was to continue. There was a huge flurry of sightings in October that were triggered by this report that made page one of the Times of all newspapers. How often do you see UFOs as the lead story in a newspaper today? And as you can see, it was triggered by a report by two police officers in Devon. They reported what they described as a star-spangled flying cross in the sky over Dartmoor. They saw it, they started following it in their patrol car. As they moved towards it, it moved away to the point at which they were doing, at times, up to 90 miles an hour, swirling around roads on Dartmoor to try and catch this thing. Uh, they appeared on TV to talk about it. It was all across the media, and it triggered a massive flurry of sightings. Um, questions were asked in the House of Commons. The Ministry of Defence was forced on the defensive, leading them to produce reams of policy statements to mollify MPs. And this marks the first and only team time that the Ministry of Defence set up a team to f do field investigations of UFO incidents. I mean, something really almost directly out of the X-Files. So the team included a UFO desk officer, the UFO desk officer, a psychologist from the RAF scientific staff, and an intelligence officer from an outfit called DI-55. Has anyone heard of DI-55? That's because they were secret. DI-55 was a secret branch of the Ministry of Defence 
1967 was given the task of conducting investigations of any UFO incident that was deemed to have what they called defence significance, i.e. it couldn't be explained by all the usual explanations. The tiny little residue that was left, could they be Russian? Could they be alien? It was DI-55 who did the investigations, not the UFO desk. Now, the DI-55 were part of the defence intelligence staff, which, if you remember, were the people who ordered the Flying Saucer Working Party back in 1950. Unlike MI5 and GCHQ, the DIS are covered by the Freedom of Information Act. And as a result, it was inevitable that their interest in UFOs would emerge under open government when documents from this era were transferred to Q. As I say, DI-55 were part of the, of the Defence Intelligence staff, staff, and their key task was to monitor ballistic missiles and space weapons uh, developed by potential enemies, including the Soviet Union. What remains of their files show they were interested in UFOs because they could often reveal the locations of Russian hardware, such as the remains of spy satellites that were occasionally reported as UFOs when they re-entered Earth's atmosphere. I'm going ahead of myself here. This is an extract, my number six, from a DI-55 policy file from 1967. It contains a fascinating insight into how they viewed the UFO mystery. As you can see, it says causes of UFO reports. And I just want to quickly mention some of the key points they make. Paragraph one. It is true to say that, by and large, reports originate from someone who has seen some unfamiliar phenomenon or from someone who has seen something well-known in an unfamiliar situation. I refer you back to the Randlesham Forest incident. Paragraph two. In this field, we are dealing with the known unreliability of untrained observers. The police files are full of conflicting reports on accidents where ordinary unbiased spectators fail to agree in their accounts of what they witnessed. Paragraph three. UFO reports occur throughout history and throughout folklore. Possibly the earliest is contained in the Bible. Paragraph six and seven. Psychological factors can also lead to UFO reports. There are two aspects. Firstly, the crowd psychology effect. When popular interest is stimulated in UFOs, such as in the recent press flurry about the Flying Cross sightings, people look for UFOs. Indeed, they wish to see them. As Jimmy Durante says, everybody wants to get in the act. The second aspect is an almost religious desire to believe in UFOs. And we go back here to Lord Hill Norton and his fascination with the Rendlesham Forest incident. He was described by the Minister of Defence as, as pursuing that story with evangelical fervour. Um, people become depressed about the troubled state of the world with its threats of nuclear, bacteriological and chemical warfare. They find it comforting to believe that superior beings exist whose technology must have triumphed over the same sort of vicissitudes that we are now undergoing. This could be written today, never mind 1967 and they regard the subject as a sign of hope for the world. Finally, just one thing I wanted to mention on this. One of the natural causes for UFOs highlighted in 1967 will become relevant in a moment. Plasma, ionised and glowing air, has given rise to UFO reports in various forms, such as a corona over power lines in St. Elmo's fire. But what about the elephant in the room? Are UFOs extraterrestrial and do the Ministry of Defence or the DI-55 know about this. This is where we find some of the most amazing material of all, especially in the last remaining UFO policy files, which have only just been transferred 
Um, and here are three extracts from a formerly secret file where DI-55 scientists swap opinions about the potential that some UFOs could truly be visitors from other worlds. The extract at the top from 1978 was taken from a briefing given by DI-55 to the UFO desk just before the House of Lords debate that happened in 1979. What we get here is a rather pessimistic view about the possibility that extraterrestrials could have visited us, let alone even noticed us. This scientist says, recent American and Soviet space probes rule out the possibility of life elsewhere in the solar system because we'd recently sent probes to Mars that found it was a barren, um, hellish desert. If UFOs are therefore extraterrestrial, they must come from outside the solar system. If now one makes reasonable assumptions about the number of stars in the universe and the proportion of interesting places in the, in the universe that an intelligent community might wish to visit, one is driven to the conclusion that a visit to an insignificant planet, Earth, of an uninteresting star, the Sun, would probably not occur more than once in a thousand years or so. Therefore, claims of thousands of such visits in the last decade or so are far too large to be credible. That was 1978. Twenty years later, his successor, DI-55 UFO desk officer, produced a far more upbeat assessment, saying, being an objective, open-minded scientist, I do not dismiss out of hand the possibility of intelligent life evolving somewhere outside of our solar system. The laws of probability would indicate a finite, albeit very small, likelihood. That said, I do not believe that we have any evidence of such life. And if credibility is given to ET, a judgment needs to be made about which government department is best suited to address it. There's a job to keep GCHQ occupied. Okay, this is my favourite, my real top document. Number eight. This is the one I think is the most revealing of all. It was a note sent by our DI-55 man to his opposite number on the UFO desk in 1995, shortly after the MOD had admitted publicly that this organisation existed. Striking a certain tone of exasperation, he writes, for many years various UFO groups have associated DI-55 with reports of UFOs. Indeed, I have several books at home that describe our supposed role as defender of the earth against the alien menace. It is light years from the truth. But he sees no reason for continuing to deny that the DIS has an interest in UFOs. However, if the association is formally made public, then the MOD will no doubt be pressured to state what the intelligence role or interest is. This could lead to disbelief and embarrassment, since few people are likely to believe the truth. And the truth is, the truth is that lack of funds, surprise, surprise, and higher priorities have prevented any study of the thousands of reports received. So I ask you, is this the elusive truth about UFOs that Prime Minister Winston Churchill demanded to know 50 years earlier. No money to look into it. It wasn't a priority. If you can see that this memo touched a raw nerve as the copy that ended up in the UFO desk files has been annotated by a civil servant who scribbled in the margin, ouch! <laughs> okay, we're getting to the end almost. I'm sure you're glad to hear. Number nine. Around the same time that the document was put together for a defence briefing in London, a new American TV series, The X-Files, began its run on British TV. 
By the end of that decade, it had attracted 20 million viewers in the US and a similar large audience share in the UK. You might remember the, the show's slogans included, government denies knowledge, the truth is out there. This remarkable document from the same file could have been used on the X-Files. It's not part of a science fiction movie, it's an actual extract from an illustrated conference briefing classified as UK Eyes B, given by a DI-55 wing commander to the UK's Chief of Defence Intelligence. This is in 1995. And as you can see, under national security implications, it says we have many reports of strange objects in the skies and we have never investigated them. And the author argued that by not investigating them, the MOD were pursuing a very risky strategy. How could they honestly say in public and in Parliament that UFOs, whatever they were, were not a threat to the realm when they had never carried out any funded study of the data on the subject? DI-55 decided there were three implications for national security. As you can see, if the sightings were, for example, caused by American spy planes, it would be most alarming if the craft were using British airspace without authority. You'd think the Americans would tell us. Even worse, if it was, and I'm guessing that says Russians, okay, <laughs> fair guess, I think, then there would be a threat to national security, and we urgently need to establish the nature of the craft and its capabilities. But what if they were extraterrestrial? Well, if they were devices not of this earth, then their purpose needs to be established as a matter of priority. There has been no apparent hostile intent, and other possibilities are, this is from the aliens, military reconnaissance, scientific, and tourism. <laughs> I suppose aliens have to go on holiday as well, don't they? Even more amazing, don't miss this bit here, under technological transfer, DI-55 <coughs> says that if devices exist that do not use conventional reaction propulsion systems, um, then we might be interested in stealing that technology and using it, capturing it, and using it as a weapon. Note, at this time, DI-55 were lobbying for public money to be spent on a proper computerised study of their records of UFOs. They argued that they had collected material for 50 years but had never been authorised to do anything with it. Basically, reports were looked at and filed away. They wanted to enter a sample of these reports into a basic Excel spreadsheet database and search for common features and clues that might help them explain some of the more puzzling experiences. Every request they'd made had been rejected right up to 1995 because the defence intelligence staff worried that spending money on such an esoteric topic at a time when the defence budget was subject to swinging cuts was not politically acceptable. But despite all these objects, objections, towards the end of 1996, they coughed up £50,000. Compare that, folks, to the £22 million supposedly spent by the Pentagon for a project called Condyne. Now, if you Google Condyne, look under the Oxford English Dictionary, Condyne, the word, means a severe and well-deserved beating. <laughs> now, the Ministry of Defence claims that code names are chosen randomly and there's nothing significant about Condyne. But what a delicious coincidence that given the evident distaste they had for the whole subject and the people who believed in it, that they would call the final document about, well, they, they would link it with a severe punishment or beating. Um, so, number 10, the final document. Um, this is the end game. We started in 1950 with Churchill's memo, and we end in 2000 with the Condyne report. 
No, again, the terminology has changed. We've now got, we've moved from flying saucers to UFOs, we've now kicked out UFOs, and now it's WAPs. You heard of WAPs, UAPs? Unknown aerial phenomena. That was the phrase that the uh, defense intelligence staff were using at this time. Um, what comes across clearly in these final documents is the Ministry of Defense's belief that the small percentage of reported sightings that remained stubbornly unidentified were real. So you can see there's been a huge change from 1950 when they said all of them can be explained. They're now saying some of them are unidentified. They are real, but they are not spacecraft. And you can see that desk officers were coming around to the idea that this small number that couldn't be explained was some kind of rare atmospheric phenomena or plasma. And you remember that was mentioned in 1967, not fully understood by science. Plasma, glowing ionized air or gas, found all over the universe. It's nothing rare at all. Um, but that's what they started um, talking about. Um, so, sadly, for those who believe that the Ministry of Defence is hiding bits of crash flying saucers and alien bodies, the executive summary says, sadly, for Roswell fans, no artefacts of unknown or unexplained origin have been reported or handed to the UK authorities despite thousands of UAP reports. There is no signals intelligence, electronic intelligence or radiation measurements. So we can kick out Colonel Holt's report from Rendlesham Forest. Even the videos and dozens of alleged photographs showing UFOs submitted to the MOD since the 1950s are not much use for analysis. But the DIS study did suggest that some observations by pilots could have been caused by certain unfamiliar, friendly black project aircraft that sneaked inside UK airspace, such as the stealth fighter and B-2 bomber. This is the final goodbye from the Minister of Defence. So this is my tenth and concluding document, and I think it speaks for itself. The main conclusion of the study is that the sighting reports provide nothing of value to the defence intelligence staff in their assessment of threat weapon systems. So that's what they were interested in. Could, were these things of, were they a threat to the UK? No. Can we use them as weapons? Could we capture them? Seems to be the, the key theme. They said that we believe many of the sightings can be explained as misreporting of man-made vehicles, natural but not unusual phenomena, natural but relatively rare and not completely understood phenomena. These are the plasmas. Um, and I think the real agenda behind what was going on behind the scenes was simply an attempt to remove the intelligence community from the whole UFO problem. They didn't like the spotlight that all this stuff had shone on the secretive world that they were moving in. So let's get a report, let's draw a line under it, and let's forget about UFOs like the Americans did in 1969 with Project Blue Book. So I think that's what we're actually uh, seeing here. And so in 2009, the UFO desk was closed. This is under Gordon Brown's government. Um, they put out this um, defence instruction notice, basically saying to the police and air traffic control, we're not interested in UFOs any longer. Don't send us reports. And ever since then, you just get a standard um, statement from the Minister of Defence. Um, in 2007, the decision was taken to transfer all the surviving UFO-related files to the National Archives, and this was, according to the press release, to counter the maze of rumour and frequently ill-informed speculation that had long surrounded their role in the subject, much of which, in my opinion, they had indirectly encouraged themselves by unnecessary secrecy and by their unquestionable decision to, continue in, to continue destroying records on this subject. 
which, as I've said, has played right into the hands of the people who just don't believe anything they say. Um, but from their point of view, it was all about saving money and avoiding involvement in a subject that brought with it lots of bad public relations and no easy solutions. Um, so they took advice from the US Department of Defense who wanted to make UFOs history by effectively moving their records to another government agency and eliminate the cost in responding to individual FOI requests. As, of, as you can see on this defense notice, the final statement is the MOD has no opinion on the existence or otherwise of ET life, but in over 50 years, no UFO report has revealed any evidence of potential threat to the United Kingdom. I'm not sure, based upon the evidence I've seen, that I agree with that, but I'm sure this is not the last word we've heard on the subject. So, that brings me to the end of this marathon. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.